Hello everyone. This is Neda Ferrier for the Memory and Future Club of the Association of Former UNESCO Staff Members. With Alexandra Draxler, we continue our series of interviews. This is a long overdue conversation with Manos Antoninis, the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report. Late in 2019, we had already scheduled with him a debate on the global goals in education. This discussion had to be postponed for much longer than anticipated as we were soon hit by the pandemic. Now, thanks to this new format and to Manu's willingness to give us space in his busy agenda, we are able to take it up again. Alexandra will take us through this interview. Hi, thank you, Neda, for your introduction and thank you for the Association of Former UNESCO staff members for having taken the initiative to with NORAG to get us together. I appreciate it a lot. I worked for UNESCO for many years, as you know, and I'm also affiliated with NORAG. So you've already introduced Mano Andoninis, who is an economist and a specialist in questions related to development. Um, he's worked in a number of aid recipient countries, notably in Asia and Africa, and has since 2011 has been with and then directing the Global Education Monitoring Report. This report is coming up to its 20th edition. It, is, it has multilateral financial support, is a reference for analysis and data in education, and is housed at UNESCO. We're talking today at what is a, water, a watershed time for development. We just passed the first decade of the two decade ambitious sustainable development goals. But this year's COVID pandemic has seen schools shuttered or partially closed on a scale never seen since schooling began. The SDGs are at the same time acutely and urgently pertinent and also in danger of being somewhat sidelined by day-to-day -day emergencies. In recent years, worries and doubts have emerged concerning the future of multilateralism that the COVID pandemic has indeed highlighted. Aid to education is stagnating, national budgets for education in the poorest countries have been cut back, and the increasing diversity of actors and initiatives in education could lead to some fragmentation of efforts. Your own work, Manos, heading the team of the Global Education Report has given you uh, excellent perspective on this panorama. And I would like to ask you first to share with us a few of your observations on the progress to date towards the SDGs and perhaps some of the obstacles we still face. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, Neda, for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, indeed, uh, monitoring progress is, is very important, but uh, as you mentioned, the SDGs have been very ambitious. In fact, uh, one could say they have been aspirational. So if we are to evaluate progress relative to that aspiration, then we'll find ourselves really lagging seriously behind. Uh, just to give an indicative example, there was a commitment to achieve universal secondary completion by 2030. but uh, at current pace or at least at pace up to the pandemic, only six out of 10 young people were expected to be um, completing secondary school by 2030. So it is very important to set uh, the level of aspiration right, or at least commit to get countries to commit to a certain level of ambition that would be a good stretch for their uh, capabilities and not perhaps uh, sets uh, let's say targets that may 
be unachievable, which then means people get a little bit off the hook relative to the commitments they made to intensify their efforts and prioritize education more. So there is a commitment in the framework for action, uh, the foundational document of this agenda. Uh, in its paragraph 28, it called on uh, countries to set so-called intermediate benchmarks uh, for uh, dealing with that particular issue, the potential lack of accountability in the process of implementing a global agenda like the SDGs and SDG4 in particular. But uh, unfortunately, uh, not much happened during the first five years. So the, the GEM report uh, has been working with uh, UIS that is actually leading on this process to bring us back on track. Uh, we published a blog in late 2019 calling on countries to do that. Before that, we had even made a call on getting regional organizations much more involved uh, in the process of setting benchmarks. Um, we then moved forward with the Technical Cooperation Group, which is the body that uh, has been set up by UIS to uh, monitor the, let's say, manage the implementation of the monitoring framework of SDG4. And we proposed seven indicators that could be benchmarked, and then uh, they were approved. And last year, despite the pandemic, we worked hard to also get a process, both a technical methodology, but also a political process of how we could get there. And at the global education meeting, uh, there was also a commitment to uh, agree on these benchmarks uh, during 2021. So this is a process we're currently involved with, and that's very important because without uh, a, a good sense of how countries set their objectives for at least a, a hardcore of indicators, it is very difficult to assess whether progress is being made. So that's uh, an important, I would say, uh, turning point. And I think one should talk about this as a, as a first point. We'll talk about accountability, but it's not really about counting. It's about giving a narrative. Countries should give a narrative back to their people and to the international community as a byproduct, that's not the most important thing, uh, as to whether they have intensified their efforts and have been really fulfilling their commitment. Now, to give one last example, because these seven indicators are all fairly quantitative uh, and they cover you know, some of the basic uh, areas that are of common interest to all countries, so basic education, completion, learning and attendance, um, early childhood attendance, uh, the um, commitment to ensure qualified teachers, uh, some financing benchmarks, and also one benchmark that remains to be set on uh, equity. But on top of that, let's not forget that the agenda also has other aspects, which are perhaps less quantifiable, but are equally important. Uh, target 4.7, for some people, encapsulates the essence of the agenda, uh, especially the, the, the arm or the leg of the agenda that is about the environment. But there, we don't have enough uh, of a drive for accounting to our citizens as to whether we're doing enough. The, 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 the global indicator on this issue is self-reported by countries. Uh, and that in itself reduces a lot of the potential uh, focus and pressure on countries to do better. Um, so this is just the first step, the work we're doing with the more quantifiable um, indicators on which we have enough data, we would like to see also more progress on more qualitative aspects of the agenda. That's, I think, uh, in a nutshell of how progress is to be uh, monitored and assessed. Thank you so much. That's really, really interesting that um, 
you said the environmental benchmarks are, are just not there yet. Could you just say a few more extra words about that? Because we're very- Yeah, the uh, target 4.7 uh, uh, its global indicator is meant to be uh, focusing on the uh, extent to which countries make efforts to incorporate elements of sustainable development and global citizenship in their policies, uh, in the teacher education programs, uh, in their, um, in their um, assessment mechanisms, for instance. Uh, but the mechanism that is being used is a, is, a, is a good one, potentially, in the sense that it is based on an intergovernmental process that has uh, some history. So that's the, um, the 1974 recommendation that uh, UNESCO um, issued. Uh, and which has a regular monitoring mechanism but the problem is not there the problem is the extent to which the information that countries report can be validated uh, there has been a recent attempt to improve the process in the next round but to some extent given the the complexity of these issues and the need to you know be a bit more objective uh, some expert information should really be added to that indicator in order to generate a dialogue uh, environment, an environment where people can really talk about whether things are going in the right direction or not. Self-reporting does not quite lend itself uh, to such a process, and that openness should be a key part uh, of the agenda. Um, I might add, you might want to comment on this later, that changing the curriculum is often a fairly weak lever for, for long-term attitudinal and behavioral change, and so most of what we've seen so far has been about the curriculum. Maybe that's uh, something you'd want to comment on later. To jump ahead with the data, uh, the foundations of the GEM report are, of course, data. And you just said something about how difficult it is to get things that are uh, both measurable and accurate and, and also used. And uh, the GEM report has done a lot in recent years to strengthen data collection, validity, and diversity of presentation, diversity of means of communication. And would you like to talk about how you think that helps with use and, and how you are working with other institutions to improve the quality of data? Yeah, I think it's uh, important to first of all say that the, the GEM report is not collecting data. Uh, the, the GEM report is a, a prime user of data. Uh, I think the impression that the, the report was collecting data or at least producing data in some form came about 10 years ago when I think the UNESCO Institute for Statistics at the time was not embracing the rapid pace of change in the world of education statistics. Uh, it was a little bit stuck at the time at the uh, idea that there's only one source uh, and that's, that's about it. But the world was changing rapidly. New sources, household survey data, learning assessment data were uh, really um, uh, entering the world of education in a very interesting way, opening very interesting perspectives. But at the time, UIS was not really uh, seeing that. So the role of the report as a user is to be an engaged and active user and try to push uh, thinking in particular directions where we feel uh, efforts need to be exerted. So ultimately, this is what uh, happened at that time, around 2010, we did two major new, let's say, data production uh, attempts, but not really to carry doing them in the future, just to energize uh, the community to, to do what should be done. So one was uh, the analysis of household survey data that led to the world's uh, inequality database on education. 
uh, that now has is around now has been around for more than ten years, and which actually since two thousand nineteen we're we have joined with uh, efforts with UIS uh, because UIS ultimately is the uh, organization that is responsible for uh, and uh, and uh, um, you know recognized by the uh, UN Statistical Commission and the interagency and expert group on SDG indicators should be the custodian uh, agency of uh, these indicators. Um, but because the effort that the report had done on that was kind of recognized and uh, the presentation, etc., uh, UIS. Um, and uh, the general report established a partnership to continue. That's a very, very nice partnership, which we really appreciate. Uh, the second uh, statistic that we contributed and which maybe led to that confusion that the report is about producing data was the first estimate of the number of uh, children who are not uh, achieving uh, minimum proficiency in reading and mathematics. Uh, the first estimate we came up was uh, 250 million in 2012. And that was quite influential in the sense that it did um, focus attention on the need to have such an indicator uh, in the uh, post-2015 uh, period. Mm -hmm. But uh, but things have uh, changed. Uh, I think with uh, the new director, the uh, UIS has embraced uh, this uh, principle, which the UN more widely has embraced, of uh, uh, accepting multiple data sources and, and working where necessary to um, to triangulate them, uh, to make them um, like speak to each other, uh, and to essentially also engage and train, if I could say, governments to accept that reality that uh, the world is not single dimensional. There are multiple dimensions, and we have to gain from uh, different sources if we use them efficiently and effectively. Um, we are still working with UIS very closely in the technical cooperation group that UIS. Uh, established and that was a very important initiative uh, one has to remember that the first set of indicators or the indicators that we we have today were originally proposed by a group of technical experts from agencies but that is not sustainable countries need to be involved countries need to lead and uas uh, very appropriately established that um, a mechanism and uh, that is where any efforts that we continue doing on data are centering for instance we have been working on a methodology for improving the use of uh, multiple survey sources of data to estimate uh, the completion rate. Um, uh, this is an indicator that was actually absent in the agenda before 2015, uh, but we feel it's very important. Sometimes administrative data are not serving that purpose. Household survey data can be very valuable, but there were some criticisms that they're up, uh, not up to date. Uh, they're not appearing uh, very regularly. But there are technical ways of overcoming that and producing very interesting long time series and even short term projections uh, to understand where we are uh, in terms of such indicator. But our methodology is being then channeled to the technical cooperation group to be approved by countries. So it's a contribution to a, a global public good. And that's the efforts we, we're doing. One thing, uh, if I have one minute to, to say something more about it, is of course that means. Uh, by doing somewhat less on the data generation side, now that UIS is filling the, the, the position that you know it's, it's shoes, uh, is that we have turned some of our attention to more qualitative data. One of the things that uh, we felt uh, really we needed to work harder on was to give a perspective not only on where countries are in terms of the quantitative indicators, um, but also where they are in terms of uh, implementing the policies that they have committed to, to achieve SDG4. So when we had our themes, 
the themes of uh, every global education monitoring report, which are decided by our advisory board. Uh, we mainly covered uh, the field through literature reviews, through some background papers, but we were not giving the full picture of where the world was on that particular topic. So what we have introduced is the idea of a the descriptive country profile of how countries uh, approach the theme of the report, but all countries in the world uh, approach the theme of the report through their laws and policies and programs, and at least give a, a, a descriptive, but at least worldwide view of where things are, and to the extent possible, extract a few uh, statistics in terms of some key trends on how countries are approaching these issues. So we did that for the inclusion report in 2020, and we uploaded these profiles in uh, a new website, which we call Peer, because ultimately the idea is not just to use it for the report, but for countries, especially at the regional level or sub-regional level, to use it in policy dialogue. And we have had a second layer on how countries um, approach equity in education through financing. And now the, the next step is uh, um, uh, um, layer of country profiles on the theme of the next report, non-state actors in education, where we will be covering how countries regulate uh, the provision of um, uh, education by non-state actors. So that's an effort we will continue. It's not an easy one. It needs uh, many hands and many eyes and many actors to make it work uh, effectively, but it's our contribution uh, to fulfill our mandates, not just on the quantitative, but also on the qualitative fronts. Thank you so much. And that is an excellent lead in to my next question, which is precisely about the next report and the non-state actors. And this is an area which is uh, arouses strong interest, uh, strong feelings. <laughs> it's a moving landscape. There's a huge lack of data about how much uh, how much financing there actually is and where it is, and we're looking forward to see the report. Can you share a few highlights? I know that the I know the report is embargoed, but you might be able to share a few highlights and and also methodology how you went about it. I mean, the the report is not uh, embargoed in the sense that it's not written yet. It's written. We have an advanced draft. Um, we have already gone through the stage where external experts were invited to comment on that uh, draft. But that's a long-term process. The report is meant to be launched in December. We're a little bit worried because non-state actors do, um, uh, as you say, generate strong feelings. Uh, it, now, of course, countries are not particularly going to pay attention to this issue because they have other concerns. Luckily enough for us, we have our report after that, what we call the 2023 report, which uh, wisely our advisory board um, decided to be on technology before the pandemic. So that will be a nice uh, addition to the, the, the discussion. But uh, talking about um, uh, non-state actors, um, to some extent, it might be a blessing that there may be somewhat less attention to it given uh, COVID-19, because it, wherever you touch this topic, uh, people scream in all directions. Uh, um, of course, our uh, objective is to be based on facts. Um, um, I know people will want us to you know, cheerlead on one side or the other, but we, that's not what we are supposed to be doing. What uh, our role is, is to uh, review the facts and say how, uh, you know, this particular angle of education contributes or not to the achievement of SDG 4. 
So I'm not going to say much about that. I'm going to say a couple of things about the process um, in addition to the profile that we are collecting, which I think will be an interesting contribution. Um, uh, also, it will be somewhat easier. It is always a very difficult task to have country profiles. Um, very, very uh, labor intensive exercise. Um, we have completely changed the way we work in order to be able to achieve that. But at the end of the day, uh, compared to the inclusion team, which was very, very broad, uh, we find that this is a little bit more contained. Uh, we can maybe go in somewhat more depth, given that we don't have to go in such width, uh, because inclusion permeates everything, whereas you know, regulation of non-state actors is quite specific. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one aspect of our methodology. Um, but I think one also important aspect that I want to share with the participants is that for the first time for this report, we change also the way we commissioned background research. In the past, given our very tight uh, production deadlines, we usually you know, did the review of the literature ourselves and then identified people who might be able to contribute some paper incrementally to, to add uh, to what we knew. Um, but for the first time uh, for this report, we actually agreed in advance as a team what were important areas in which we wanted to commission research and then issued an open call for background papers which was a quite a logistical exercise for us but one that really opened a little bit our horizon in how we um, relate with uh, researchers around the world and also leave it somewhat also up to them to influence uh, the direction of the report with good ideas uh, that of course then we evaluated and decided how to proceed so that's another uh, dimension a third dimension is uh, another innovation that we have had in the report in the last few years, which is the concept of a regional report. Um, for many years, people have been asking the, the report to do more things um, uh, in terms of reaching out, making the report more relevant at the country level. That has always been a bit of a tough ask for uh, a report and a project that has a global mandate and therefore cannot possibly be doing things at the country level we're not uh, we're not a consultancy we're not a we're not a, a um, we don't have the resources to work at the country level but we felt we could perhaps bridge the gap i mentioned in, in earlier that we really strongly believe uh, in the role of regional uh, the regional level in making progress in the agenda we feel that uh, the global and the regional need to communicate uh, and coordinate better in order for the region then to coordinate better with uh, the countries, especially in those regions where there are good regional organizations with an interest in education, but which can be shaped through dialogue to also match the global uh, agenda aspiration. So another contribution we have made is to issue this global report where we take the theme and we look at it in more depth um, in um, uh, publishing a report a few months after the global report. We did the, the first uh, for the migration report on the Arab states. Uh, we did two for the uh, inclusion theme uh, on Latin America and the Caribbean and on Central and Eastern Europe, uh, Caucasus and Central Asia. And the uh, regional report for uh, the non-state actors will be on uh, South Asia, uh, the region of the world where at least um, externally, it appears is the one that is most characterized by the uh, activities of non-state uh, providers. Now, of course, and that's something I could say, what is state 
and what is non-state is increasingly blurred. Um, uh, what is non-state provision should not be seen only in the uh, context of schools, but because uh, non-state activity uh, also permeates many other aspects of uh, the education sector. So that's important to keep in mind. But by all accounts, South Asia is a part of the world where uh, some of these issues have become more strongly to the fore. And we have designed um, um, and identified partners for a regional report so that's quite exciting. So we're, we're looking forward to that uh, appearing shortly after the global report whose uh, launch is scheduled for December. That's very exciting. That's very exciting. And the, the fact of having the one after that on technologies is going to be a, a very interesting follow-up during the, we hope, the tail end of the COVID crisis. Um, when we were pre preparing for this conversation, you mentioned something about prioritization among the goals and targets. And this is a conversation that certainly we see in the literature and a number of get-togethers recently that there is gradually a, a, a trend to an admission that overt prioritization might be necessary. Of course, covert prioritization has been going on for a while. And you might want to talk a little bit about this because that's that's also an interesting feature of the of the current period we're in at the SDGs. It's true. Uh, COVID may have changed things uh, to an extent that we were only beginning to realize, um, and it may well be uh, that um, we will find ourselves in front of a completely new landscape uh, and a type of crisis, really. I think that's uh, one, one particular issue is that the word crisis has been abused sometimes in the past, uh, but it, it does look increasingly that we are actually uh, faced with, with a crisis in education now. Uh, the consequences of uh, you know, not being able to access school uh, or accessing it from a distance um, may be quite uh, grave. Uh, information is trickling in right now from a number of countries. Uh, we hope by December to be able to consolidate that in, in, a, in a, you know, these little bits and pieces of this mosaic that will continue um being filled in over the years it's not just one one off right. um, and we we may find ourselves in a in a much more difficult situation than we actually anticipated but leaving that aside uh, there has been of course a conversation uh for a long long time but let's say uh, one that has been re-energized in the last few months about how, how to improve the so-called global architecture um, uh, of education and there, there are many uh, factors one needs to consider. Um, the first is whether it is an architecture that is really supposed to be about education in general or about aid to education, so the development side of education. That's a, an important question that one needs to pose first because if one doesn't, then, um, then I think we, we are kind of not uh, talking the same language. I personally feel that an architecture for education is important, not just aid to education, because aid to education is only a part, sometimes only a small part. And I think it would be nice and better to see that parts entering into a more global debate on all aspects related to education. That doesn't mean that what should be the main preoccupation of aid to education should not be part of that architecture. but 
but it's it's worth asking the question whether it should be uh, an umbrella where a number of education questions that are relevant for all countries in the world should be uh, discussed at the same time so so that's one part the second and, and I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on that uh, on priorities another aspect of that is how much we have been using data um, i think that the architecture has not been using the data that it has enough um, and that should be promoted the use of that information not because it's of value in itself but because of how it can steer a policy dialogue uh, we have felt and i return again to the regional theme we have felt that uh, what happened in europe over the last uh, 30 uh, years is very important countries do not usually like to discuss education uh, but maybe they they want to they start to if they are um, if it's put in a framework of how education serves wider objectives that's what uh, the european union did with its member states it embedded education in a broader economic and social agenda it set some benchmarks, the kind of benchmarks that we are discussing now, trying to introduce uh, at different parts of the world, and then use those to progress. And I think it is important uh, for, for that process to be used more, uh, even for a global uh, agenda. Of course, there are limitations, but that's why we say that it should be discussed more at the regional level, but the global level can coordinate how that is done uh, and support regions to, to make progress. Um, now, to return to, and, and then, uh, you know, with data comes prioritization, and from prioritization we can have the discussions on financing. So that that link can be a bit more uh, clear. Um, on priorities, I would say that we have to respect the fact that the SDGs are an agenda with at least two legs, at least uh, the the, the so-called poverty reduction uh, leg, what is the legacy of the MDGs, and you know, and EFA, um, one could say. Uh, and then secondly, the leg of the Rio process, the, the um, sustainability with an emphasis on environment, but not only, but now they have been uh, thankfully been combined into one agenda. So the, the priorities in that sense, there should be at least one priority from each side. Uh, the priority of um, the countries furthest behind is definitely uh, important. And it has been framed sometimes in terms of uh, universal completion of basic education and foundational learning skills. There's a lot of controversy sometimes. Uh, you know, this is discussion, do education systems um, develop in this lopsided way? You just put all your emphasis in one part and then you, you ignore the other. I, I don't think that's the point of the, 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 those who are actually advocating. Uh, I mean, sometimes the language sounds like that, but I don't think anyone would disagree that there's no scope for building uh, skills, wider skills in society if, if uh, your young people have not mastered the most basic skills of understanding uh, text, analyzing text, interpreting text, uh, and doing the same with, with mathematics. And of course, to achieve that, you need to invest in other parts of the system, but, but uh, the emphasis of, this, of the system should be on ensuring progress on that. We should not be unrealistic about the rate of progress we can do but systems should be driven by that consideration i think that's the main point of those who advocate and i think that should be a priority for a global architecture but then we should also think about uh climate change um uh, inevitably that's the foundation of the uh, of the sdgs and i come back to your point is it just about curriculum 
no, it's a much wider um, uh, question. And I think just engaging countries to interrogate the assumptions behind what might work is really important. And also let's not forget the foundation learning is only a priority for the poorest countries and the richest countries that may contribute funds uh, to that goal. That leaves the middle uh, unengaged and that's a weakness of the architecture. If we want a truly global architecture that uh, refers to all countries. Um, so climate change is by contrast, a more universal um, concern. Um, so that helps, would help to have that item on the agenda. I agree with you, curriculum is not the only tool. It is an important tool, but we know how long it takes to implement changes. Uh, uh, but I think a discussion needs to happen also to interrogate the link between knowledge, attitudes and behaviors. It's the perennial challenge of education, but it needs to be addressed and it needs to be discussed at the highest level. Um, of course, we are, then we'll acknowledge education not the only tool that we have, but we need to think harder how education systems can address uh, that conundrum. And then I would add to that aspects and priorities that can bring more people to the table. Um, I think that what the architecture has suffered and everybody recognizes that um, countries have not prioritized this architecture to send the, the people who have the strongest, are in the strongest position to influence change, uh, to engage at the highest levels of governments. So we need to bring those people. So I would not want to go into more detail. I mean, I have my ideas, but anything that can attract interest and bring people who have decision-making power to the table should be used as a hook because we want these people too, even if they come from middle-income countries, to engage on questions of foundational learning because they have things to, to share and help the poorest countries. It should not just come from the richest countries. These are countries that have more recently come uh, through this difficult process and they still have some issues of that kind but you need them engaged it's a global issue if if uh, if the poorest quarter of the planet really struggles and you have uh, nine out of ten children not achieving these minimum levels of proficiency this is a global issue but we don't have the mechanism to engage these countries uh, that are in the middle to uh, to participate in this uh, dialogue so there are ways uh, but it's a long long and big issue I don't want to say more at this stage, but happy to refine my answer if you would like me to. You know, I think we've covered so many topics and I would just like to highlight the fact that you pointed us in the direction of a number of levers for change that you've been exploring with the report. Um, we have discussed, we have discussed the various partnerships that are need to be intensified at the regional level and, and also at the international level. You, the one thing I would like to ask you to talk a bit more about that comes through in many of the documents for the GEM report is the fact that increased spending doesn't always produce the results one hopes. And you've developed a lot of ways of measuring this and looking at you know, why increased spending on its own won't do the job of the major changes and that need to be, that we need to achieve. Could you conclude with that? Sure, I could say a few things. I mean, um, it, it, one has to qualify it. Definitely uh, more spending improves um, education outcomes for the poorest countries. I mean, there are countries that spend uh, pitiful amounts uh, because of their poverty. 
property. And if only they had access to more resources, things could be different. Of course, we don't know how much more money they can absorb uh, because that in itself is, is a challenge. But we know that it works at the lowest end of the scale. Then um, the, after a certain threshold, then the relationship between spending and outcomes is not so clear. Um, we may not have enough data uh, for, for the proof of that, but it seems quite clear that this is the case. But let's let's separate the two, and that's uh, how we have also responded in our monitoring of the two benchmark indicators on financing, which is the percentage of um, of uh, um, the total education total expenditure of the government on education, and the percentage of GDP that is dedicated on education. We've tried to look at them together, not to take one. Uh, and then the other, because some countries are poor, they don't raise enough uh, domestic revenue, and therefore they cannot spend enough. Um, but uh, they have a lot of children uh, in the, the population, and therefore they do spend more than the average in their budget on education. So we tend to focus on those countries that fail both benchmarks, and these are really countries that uh, need attention, and there are quite a few. Uh, they're between one uh in four and one in three countries in the world so these countries we need to continue uh, putting the spotlight on them to make sure that uh, they increase their emphasis on education um one thing that we did recently was we um uh, we partnered with the world bank on a publication uh which we called the education finance watch um that kind of brought together um the approach that we had been following in the report on our finance chapter where we we like to see at all the finance sources together the government, uh, the uh, households, and the aid budgets uh, jointly, because that's very important. Often we tend to look at each one uh, separately, and that doesn't lead to the right conclusions. And then the World Bank brought its own uh, analysis of uh, several issues that uh, were worth uh, exploring further. Um, and we have tried to fill some gaps in terms of long-term series uh, regional and global averages uh, on levels of spending which we were uh, lacking um, and again this is just the first attempt we we hope to uh, improve that uh, submit that to the technical cooperation group for discussion can it be done better but we felt it was necessary to make some progress on some of these indicators um, then again uh, the the bigger discussions of uh, spending and outcomes will remain it will be constantly on the debate what we like to focus on is how countries can spend a bit more wisely in terms of focusing more on uh, equity and that was the topic of our last uh, policy paper uh, published in january which was based on the profiles that we collected for not all countries for about 80 countries uh, on how they use the financing to target uh, schools and students who are most in need so that debate needs to continue, and uh, we hope this uh, Education Finance Watch to continue to be an annual series with a topic, the focus topic that will change every year. Thank you so much, Manos. I, you, you, uh, the, the equity question is going to be, we have a world-class uh, example going on right now about how, how a crisis can reduce reduce gains in equity in a very, very short period of time. So we've got a, you've got a lot of work to do. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, much appreciated. And we'll stop there. Thank you.